Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 3 through 6 today. We'll start with verse 2 in just a moment. Well, there are two movements that every healthy church must have. There's two movements that every true church must have. A movement, a movement inward. A movement to gather as we have. A movement if you will, behind the doors of the church, of movement toward one another, the life of the church. And that's where Paul has had our attention in this book for most of the books so far. He's put our attention upward to Christ and to God and his work. But in chapters two through three, he's focused on the life of the church. But he ends here with a second movement of the church. There's a movement behind the doors of the church, and there's also a movement beyond. Let's start reading in verse 2. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the very best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The fullness of Christ in his church, overflowing with words of life, out to the world. The word of Christ dwelling richly in us in order that the words of life may dwell richly on our lips. One of the most important things a faithful church does on this earth and something that many churches in our part of the world have not done well to the church's peril is distinguish clearly, crisply, even provocatively between outsiders and insiders. And this morning, some of you are outsiders. And I want you, the Lord wants you, and our church wants you to know that you are an outsider. I was at time an outsider, and I thank God that that church wanted me to know that I was an outsider. My friend's mom, after I was invited to church and they were passing the bread on a communion Sunday, actually making sure that I didn't take communion. That's a good thing. It was a little awkward. I wanted to take some of the bread. Everyone else was doing it. But at that moment, I needed to know that I was on the outside and I was in an insider's meeting. Well, this is a meeting of insiders and there are some on the outside looking in. And if that's you, we're going to be talking about how we talk to you and about what we say to you and about how we say it today. And I pray you'll find that Christ has set you on our hearts and that we love you and that we are here for you and that we long for you as a person and not as a project. Don't think of today like listening in on a marketing meeting for a cold call bank. The people around you will not be receiving iPads for your conversion. 
They receive, we receive, heaven receives you. And that is our treasure. Think of it as a meeting instead ahead of a rescue operation. Indeed, in the middle of a rescue operation for men and women trapped in danger. And some are so used to the fear and trouble of their situation that they've put it out of their mind around us. Some have tried so many attempts to rescue themselves. Maybe you have tried so many attempts to fix your problem of sin and shame and guilt that you've given up. Or maybe you pretend now that your, your best argument to God for your, your uh, righteousness is actually something that makes you safe. In any case, today we're going to meet to talk about our rescue operation, and we're glad for you to listen in. And church, this is my prayer for us today, and this has been my prayer as I've been looking forward to this particular passage for a good while. And this is my prayer that I've been praying for you this week, that God would make our church a vital witness for Jesus in this community. Through the individual individual gospel sharing and commending faithfulness of each of our members. Let me repeat that. That God would make our church a vital witness to Jesus in this community through the individual gospel sharing and commending faithfulness of each of our members. May God grant that to us. That God would make me and our elders ever more faithful examples to you in this and equippers of you in this. God's evangelism strategy is brilliant. And we so overprogram evangelism, we so centralize it, we bureaucratize it, we mechanize it. But here in this text, we see a decentralized, life on life, one to one labor. And in some ways, it's hard, but if we can get over, if we can get over it, wow, the power that would be unleashed for each of us 52 weeks out of the year to gather here and then scatter throughout the community with the word of the gospel on our lips. May God grant us to be a vital witness to Jesus in our community. We have a prayer to pray this morning, an example to follow, and we have people, people to win. A prayer to pray. Before we try to hear these words for our church, let's try to hear them first for the church that meant and read them for the first time. The church at Colossae, it was a small church met in the home of a man named Philemon. They were also a young church. These were new Christians. Paul opened his letters celebrating their faith and the story of how they came to faith. Epaphras had become a Christian, had come to Colossae and spoken the word of the gospel there. And the Lord bore the fruit of conversions as men and women identified with Jesus and began to gather as a congregation and to worship him. And they were busy speaking about him. They were taught the gospel and they heard the gospel and they believed. And the gospel was increasing in them as it is increasing throughout the whole world. There were new Christians. This is a young church. It was also a vulnerable church. There were some among them uh, bossing church members around on things supposedly They shouldn't touch, taste, or eat. This is just the old-fashioned human religion that had attached itself and embedded itself within the framework and language of Christianity and then was dictating external behavior in order to measure faithfulness. 
and maturity, and ultimately, though they'd never say it, to achieve a kind of a righteousness before God. And so this environment of Colossae was vulnerable to judgmentalism and a kind of peer pressure situation to leverage uh, that pressure for behavior change. That's all that's upside down. That's what chapter two is about. But through union with Jesus and a fixation on Jesus and a fixation on his appearing and a glory to come, utter transformation could take place so that Christians put off sin and they put on holiness and love. They're a vulnerable church, vulnerable to those threats that would undermine the full work of Jesus in the community. And not only are those threats something that would undermine their full experience of Jesus, but their full witness to Jesus as well. Paul, on the other hand, Paul, on the other hand, was an apostle a church planter and a world traveler. So here he's writing to a small, young, and even vulnerable church. But Paul is an apostle. He's a planter, a world traveler, and he helped them understand Christ. And he helped them to fend off this trouble I've spoken of. And he's helped them with their their anger and their unforgiveness and with their marriages and with their parenting, we've already read. And now, what does Paul do? Now Paul asks them for help. What can they offer him? What can this little church that needs so much help from the apostle, what can they offer him? Well, prayer. He says, in effect, please pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for us. And this is not the thing that he must say in order to balance out his support letter. This is all he asks. And it's not the thing he must say in order to communicate to them the importance of dependence upon God. This is his dependence upon God. He knows that he needs prayer and he says, please pray for me. So he's giving in this letter to them and it's an apostle called by Jesus and put on a mission And he knows he needs the prayer of this little, vulnerable, young church of new Christians in rural Colossae. That's all he asks of them because he knows that this is the make it or break it difference in whether the whole project of preaching and planting will bear fruit or fail. And that's because the project of making disciples and establishing churches is a supernatural work. And he knows it. It is utterly and explicitly and entirely supernatural. We come up with plans, and we should do that. This building was established with some plans for funding the thing and constructing the thing. Paul wrote and worked plans. But church building is not widget building. Sinner saving is not product making. And many of us work all week long in processes that produce a reliable product on one widget or another. Put this in, add this, turn this way, and out comes this repeat. And this kind of thing can eke its way into meetings and into our plans so that we mechanize the thing that the church is supposed to produce And we should labor with our plans, but ever remember that the Apostle Paul, who knew how to make tents in an effective way, 
on a reliable schedule to support himself, said, pray for us, for God to open a door. The church is something else besides a widget factory. It's a community of those who were born outside the kingdom of heaven, outside the kingdom of God's beloved son, in the darkness, born loving the darkness, and a people who have been transferred into the kingdom of light. It's a people whom Christ is building, his church, and we don't do this on our own. So let's not forget whose plans our plans serve. God planned for salvation from all eternity, and God sent his son according to his plan to make salvation possible. And Jesus sent the Spirit in order to regenerate hearts, for there is no other way for the dead to be made alive. And so Paul asks for prayer, that God would open to us a door for the word. And so we pray. We pray, God, open a door for the word in the Halcyon apartment complex next door to this church. Open a door for the word in the homes of the kids at Brushy Creek and Eastside High and Riverside High. And open a door for the word in the neighborhood you pull into for shepherding group tonight and in the home you park in front of. These neighborhoods know something is going on once every other week in a home. May they know exactly what that is. And open a door for the word at the stores and on campus and on the team and in the lunchroom and at the salon and at my kitchen table. This is how we pray. We pray, open a door. And we know that each of these doors is unique. Their shape and their thickness and their texture and their color. And some have a window so you can see in. They're more inviting than others. It's like they've even let you in a little bit. Some come to the door and even talk. And some never come to the door. But they all have a lock just the same. And there is one who opens the door for the word. And it is our Lord. So pray, we do, that God would open a door for the word. But Paul does more than ask prayer from them. He gives to them, in this, an example to follow. An example to follow. Paul is teaching us, in this, the first thing about our mission. And that is, we can't do our mission. Think about it. Paul had all the knowledge and the know-how and the theology and the experience and all the connections and the preaching capacity, even the special personal calling by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus and the proof that he was the real thing in the chains around his ankles. And he knew he needed the prayers of this church. So let's pray to God for an open door for the word. And let's say to one another, Pray also for me that God would open a door for the word. Send an email to ask for your brother to pray for an open door in the life of your dad. A text to your spouse in the middle of the day as a reminder to pray for an open door in the lives of your unbelieving grown children. Come to evening prayer and ask for prayer for your neighbor out loud so that we can all pray. It's one reason we meet. Meet with your sister in Christ and ask for prayer for your hardened husband. Don't go it alone. You are not alone. God doesn't want it to be just you and him on this. He wants it to be you and him and your brothers and sisters on this. And he has ordained beautifully, mysteriously, 
that you would pray and that we would all pray for those in our lives that we long to know him. After Paul's example, friends, our success in evangelism does not mute our need for others to pray. It fuels our need for others to pray for it proves God's willingness to open those doors. And brothers and sisters, after Paul's example, our setbacks in the work, like prison and other forms of opposition, don't dampen our confidence in God's plan to save. For persecution is indeed also a part of God's plan along the way. For he has not saved everybody. And not everyone who hears the word will come, will hear the shepherd's voice and come. Some will attack, but we speak still. So come what may through that door, God, open for us a door for the word. So let's follow in Paul's example of gospel praying and in gospel partnership. So let's start with prayer. Always start with prayer, but never stop there. Let's follow his example in gospel speaking. Gospel speaking. In other words, let's be sure, as we are praying for God to open a door for the word, that we would ever be ready to open our mouths with the word. How can they believe if they have not heard? And God uses the ordinary means of his disciples speaking about him as the way that he transmits his good news to the next person. This is his really, really, really brilliant, simple, too simple for us to appreciate sometimes, plan. He's not praying that he would have boldness to speak. He prays elsewhere that he would speak with boldness. And he's not praying here that he would have the clarity of mind to speak, but that he would speak with clarity. He certainly isn't asking for prayer For help deciding if he should speak. That would be like praying, God, please help me decide if I should love my wife like Christ loved the church today. Don't pray that prayer. Speak Christ. Speak Christ. Our evangelism is conducted with the instrument of words. It is why we're here. Good news is published with words. Well, what kind of words? We follow Paul's example in gospel praying, partnering, speaking, and in gospel clarity. Gospel clarity. He's not satisfied to get some words across. He wants to get Christ across. He wants to declare the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear, he says. And that I may make it clear could otherwise be translated that I may reveal him. Reveal The way that Christ is revealed to the world around us, to the sinners around us, to those to whom God is calling to himself, is through the the clear revealing through words of the Son of God. And what is the mystery of Christ? Well, it's the answer to the old question of how will God reconcile sinners to himself? That's the, the vertical problem, the problem between man and God. And as we've learned in this book, it is, it is through the blood of Jesus that he does this. Our sins nailed to the cross so that they are taken away. So that God may declare us just, not guilty, because the punishment has fallen on the Son of God. 
And if you're an outsider listening in this morning, right there is the message for you. There is an answer to the problem between you and God, to the problem of sin and guilt and shame and even the fear of death. And it is the Son of God, Christ on the cross, suffering there, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus becoming sin himself, taking our sin on himself in order that God may declare the guilty, you and I, just. He nails our sins to the cross and he takes them away. He solves the vertical problem. That's the mystery of Christ. How is God going to fix the problem between us and him? Well, he does it through the cross. That's the mystery of Christ. It's the answer to the old question of how God will ever ever reconcile man to man. And this is the horizontal problem. There is a problem between every human and every human and, and people groups and people groups and kinds of people. But in Christ, slave, free, Jew, Greek, male, female, all are one in Christ Jesus. He creates a new humanity. He breaks down the barriers between us. He takes it away. As he reconciles sinners to himself, he reconciles sinners to one another. And if there's ever proof that God can reconcile sinners to himself, it is that he reconciles sinners to one another. For humans have not come up with a solution for either. What is the mystery of Christ? It's also the answer to the old question of how God will reconcile the whole place and set the whole universe right. And this is the the cosmic problem. We've got tornadoes and a broken universe and viruses and all kinds of stuff. But Jesus is reconciling all things to himself through the blood of his, his cross. He creates a new creation and he starts with a new humanity. And as he makes a new humanity, a new people, you can see the beginnings of an entirely new creation in the bright spot of every God-faithful, gospel-faithful congregation that meets. As our problems have been blurred and taken away, as we're reconciled to one another and as we're reconciled to himself, you can see a flash of heaven. And one day he'll make all things new. The new creation has come in a person in Jesus. It comes in a people, that's you and me right here, right now, a foretaste of the new creation in a place, an entirely new world. Vertical, horizontal, and cosmic salvation. That's the mystery of Christ on our lips. Jesus is the answer to every meaningful problem that there is. And this is how we ought to speak. We speak all day about solutions to our problems. What's wrong with the dishwasher and how to fix it? Um, two weeks ago, we had to, actually, I was on the phone. Christy called the fire department, and I was like, what's going on? There's a fire truck outside with smoke in the house. Um, a little plastic part had fallen on the heating element in the dishwasher. And uh, Shay grabbed the all of her dolls and ran outside fully expecting the whole place to burn down. Sometimes you forget to relax the children uh, when the fire truck pulls up. It, we don't know what it is, but they'll figure it out. You know that problem about how everyone dies? You know how everyone knows that, but they often ignore it, but how really honestly we're always 
all of us deathly afraid of it? Yeah, we've got a fix to that problem. You know how everyone says they aren't perfect, but no one really admits they're actually deeply flawed and ashamed? We have an answer to that problem as well. We have an answer to the problem of sin and death. We aren't a church that distinguishes itself in the first place from other churches. We're a church that distinguishes itself from the darkness around and the upside-down, inside-out, false answers to the problem of death and sin. And we distinguish ourselves against other churches inasmuch as some other churches have forgotten this answer. And we remember that around us are men and women caught in darkness who have received lies about what the gospel is and what the solution is from men and women who are in churches with steeples and with crosses. And so we are ever tuned in to the distinction between outsiders and insiders and what makes an insider and what the real answer to the real problem is. Ever dialed in to the real problem but not distracted with non-problems. We don't take Satan's bait in that way. The problem about how everyone dies, the problem about sin in the heart and our guilt and our shame, we have an answer to that problem. Jesus' blood and righteousness is on our lips. May we make it clear as we ought to speak. Ought. There's another one. We follow Paul's example of gospel conviction. Gospel conviction. Paul prays for God to open a door for the word in order that Paul may open his mouth to declare that word. And the Colossians know all about this. They are the fruit of his ministry of opening the mouth. They're the fruit of his conviction as he is passing that conviction on. And don't miss the dual agency here. The God who opens and the Christian who ought. The God who opens and the Christian who ought. Ought like must. Like it's your job. Like responsibility. These are not an apparent contradiction. The God who converts and the preacher who makes clear the God who <coughs> excuse me. The God who converts the heart and the preacher who makes the word clear to the heart. Why is this um, so hard for us? Because it can be hard for us. Well, because we're afraid. We know that we have an offensive message, ultimately. And it comes with a cost when we open our mouths. An economic cost, it can. A social cost. An emotional cost. A cost of time. That's why we need Paul's example in this way, too. His example of gospel risk. Gospel risk. He was in chains. But notice he's not saying, pray for me that I would be released from prison so that I may preach. He doesn't say, pray for me that I would be released from prison. That'd be my prayer. He says, pray for me for an open door that I may declare it as I ought to speak on account of which I'm in chains which is called being rejected, which is called difficult, which is called awkward, which is called inconvenient, which is called unsuccessful, being chained, which is called worth it, which is called worth it. Jesus' preaching ministry had a, 
had a social cost among others. Hear this from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus was in trouble with the local religious leaders for his proximity to outsiders, his comfortability with outsiders, his casualness even sharing meals with outsiders. It says, so he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, everybody, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just like that, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who apparently need no repentance. More rejoicing in heaven. So may God grant our church to be ever more in tune with the things that make heaven happy, with what makes heaven leap, which what triggers in heaven a party. May we rejoice over the salvation and even seek the salvation of even one sinner. Paul is praying and asking for a door for the word on account of which he's in prison. It comes with risk and it comes with the reward of some who repent. Now here's a question for you. Is it enough to pray for a door and to proclaim the mystery of Christ? So those are the big ones, right? We pray for the God who opens and as we ought, we Speak with clarity. God opens doors and he uses his word, right? Is it enough? Well, it's not enough. And how can I say that? Because of what Paul says next. He says, there's another ought here. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. No, God is not lacking in ability to save, and so he needs us. No, 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 not at all. But God is abundant in means by which he saves. And one of those means is the life of his people. God hears our prayers and uses our proclamation. And he marshals proof from our lives and our life as a people to persuade. A prayer to pray. An example to follow. Now, people to win. People to win. God's design includes the message declared and displayed in the lives of those who speak it. Now, to some of our ears, we hear this winning people language and alarms go off. And that's not an altogether bad thing. I'd be proud of you for some alarms to be going off. There's a lot of bad man-centered evangelism out there. Evangelism that so focuses on the person that it does engage in manipulation to get them 
And you may have been a victim of this at some point, and it's terrible. There's nothing more important to a, to a person than their standing with God. And so we owe people the fairest and the plainest and most honest handling. We do not do anything to win them. As they say, what you win them with, you'll win them too. Our evangelism is as fancy as the blood and righteousness of a cross. But Jesus did come to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus did engage in in meals and conversation and presence with sinners and tax collectors to such an extent that it drew drew the eye of those who, who didn't. He was about persuasion. How has God told us to win them? That's the question. What kind of method has God given to us? We always want to ask that question. We win them first, we can say, with our lives. We walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Remember uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 5. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill could not be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Jesus, who is himself the light to the nations, the light of the world, saves his people and turns them on as a light to his own glory to shine throughout the world. The light of Jesus is transmitted into the world through his people, the church. And that light is magnetic. And his people who are out there whom he's chosen in his drawing do come to him as they come to the church. And you may be here as an outsider and you just keep coming and you're not sure why you keep coming because you've never believed this stuff. You're starting maybe to believe it or to engage it, the gospel that is, but you keep coming. And why do you keep coming? Because you're drawn to the light of the community of the people that God makes. The church is a light, it's a lamp, a city on a hill. It's walking toward outsiders refers to our course and way of life, which means one of the most important evangelistic methods is living in order to be seen, which means our lives are in proximity to outsiders, which means our lives are part of the experience of outsiders in their world that keep bumping up against the light, which means our lives are rubbing up against and mingled in with the fabric of the life of outsiders, which means we can't always be with insiders. We really can't. We gather in order to scatter. Our words speak gospel content and our lives commend the gospel. We speak gospel content fixed and gospel commendation flexible. Gospel proclamation and gospel proof. What happens if you have one without the other? Well, we need both. You'll have a really loving and wholesome life that is either invisible to the world or inexplicable to the world, and that's not a good thing. So you want our friends and neighbors to be able to explain 
to understand how it is that God has done a work in us? What is to stop them from believing that your life, as you have put off sin and anger and wrath and malice, and as you've put on love and compassion and forgiveness and forbearance, what is to keep them from believing that this is a product of the teaching they heard from the Mormon missionary a few days ago at their door? Or the Catholic grandmother they remember growing up with who spoke in terms of works righteousness? Or the moralistic, therapeutic Christianity they grew up with in high school? We cannot assume that those who look on the transformation God has brought in our community as a church in our lives will get it. No, it takes words. Without words, your life is to them either meaningless or it means the wrong thing or someone else is doing the work of explaining you in the gospel. A gospel-shaped life is only comprehensible as such by the gospel proclaimed. But this goes both ways. So we don't think we can have a life without words, but don't think you can preach the gospel and not live it before them in a way that proves it's true. Jesus said, let your light shine. You're the light of the world. May they see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Your good life, your transformed life, yes, your humility before God and knowledge that you're a sinner and constant dependence upon God and confession, but also the way that God has actually changed you and is making you a new creation and conforming you to Christ, all of that is one of his persuasive means of appealing to the lost. As he was talking about you as individual lives transformed, Jesus was, He also speaks of the community itself and its transformation as a light. You're a city, not mere citizens on a hill. You're a city on a hill. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17 for this paradigm. There's individual witness and individual transformation, but there's also the creation of a community that bears witness to Jesus. Jesus in his prayer before his death said, I have given them, his disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is not only saving men and women for individual gospel missions. He does speak of life-on-life work of gospel sharing in our text today, but he saves men and women for the creation of a people who will be one in him, whose life will be characterized by the sanctification of truth and and love for one another, 
He saves them and he makes them one in order that the world may know. How will the world know that God sent Jesus and Jesus is who he said he is and the gospel is true? How will they know? They will know it by looking at the people he has saved. I love this. We're not citizens on a hill, but we're a city on a hill. And here's what that means. Here's what that means. And this is really, really key. It means that when we're getting to work on being a healthy church, when we're getting to work on being healthier elders, and when we're getting to work on doing a better job of taking care of one another in shepherding groups and being there for one another in our pain and bearing one another's burdens and confessing our sins to one another and being vulnerable about our need, And as we're faithful to gather and stir one another up to love and good works. In all of the ways that we labor week in, week out to take care of one another. And to be one. And to reflect the holiness and the beauty and the love and the radiance and the glory of Jesus Christ in our life together inwardly. All of that is cashed in for outward witness. It's possible sometimes to compartmentalize these in a way that isn't biblical and to think about church life over here and then evangelism over here. But these things interplay beautifully. The reason we are in the world is in order to bear witness to the light of the world as light in the world. So one of the ways that we as a church bear a vital witness to Jesus in our community is in this last year, for example, how so many of you, I think there were 50 on our rotation, show up to sit with and care for and pray with Geneva Anderson in her last weeks and do so cheerfully and with joy and energetically, even as that is difficult. It's how you take your parents in when they're sick and elderly and you sweat, and you give, and you take care, and that can be difficult. It's how you bear with one another in your marriage. It's how we care for one another in our parenting. It's how we forbear with one another as a church. All of these things contribute to the brightness of the city that is our church on a hill at Hudson and Old Spartanburg. All of the inward work of our investment from elders and deacons and staff and shepherding group leaders and every member who lets the word of Christ dwell in us richly and speaks that word to one another. All of that is a part of Jesus' plan to evangelize our community. So be very careful about drawing too tight a distinction between a church that focuses on itself and its health and a church that focuses on its community. We can't just face inward and move inward, but we can't move outward if we aren't moving inward. There's a constant movement, inward and outward, as we gather each week and as we scatter each week. I love it. Matthew 5 and John 17 root that theology of the inward and outward interplay of God's evangelistic strategy. We win them with our lives and our life together. 
We also win them with our eagerness. I know we're all afraid of eagerness uh, in evangelistic strategy. This is, we've seen this go wrong. Persistence, though, persistence, I promise you, I compel you, is biblical. Paul says, make the best use of the time. Otherwise translated, buy up the time. It's limited. Snatch it up. Snatch up opportunities like a deal to speak the word of Christ. There's no time to waste. Every soul is eternally precious and every soul is trapped in time and there is a clock ticking. You will not win a foot race if you sit down and you will not win a person to Christ if you believe or at least act like you have eternity to do so. If we will have them respond with urgency to the gospel, which is urgent, then we will do well to approach the whole matter of their soul with urgency, with persistence, and with eagerness. I've shared this with you all before, but it, it dovetails so nicely with this point. I was saved when one 13-year-old's persistence kept persisting. He asked me to come to youth group, and I told him no, and a month later, no again, and a few months later, and I asked him if I would be liked there, if I'd be a loner there. And he said, of course you will, in his own words. That's I took home, and I said, I will go with you then. And I'm glad Brent didn't assume I was mad about it when I said no. I'm glad he didn't assume I had some objection to church, though I knew it was uncool. It was California. I'm glad he didn't assume I had a really great life already since my parents were together and his weren't. He and his mother had recently become Christians together in the aftermath of a very difficult divorce. And I'm glad he didn't assume I would keep saying no, because I didn't. And you know what I found in the years that followed? That the two of them had been praying for me in Brent's homeroom class, me a little friend, a mother and her son praying for her son's friend. A mother recently divorced in the middle of her life's greatest tragedy comes to Christ and cultivates within her son a life of prayer for his unsaved friends and sending him on to help build a little bridge to me for the gospel with persistence. And I joined him to that youth group and then I went back. Which leads nicely to the last way we win people which I set up with an obvious question here. Does the urgency of the task trump common courtesy? Because when we think of persistence and, and eagerness, we often think of rough shots and inconsideration. When I'm running out of time, I tend to stop listening and I don't say things as nicely. No, the gospel's urgency demands common courtesy. We'll win them with our lives and our eagerness and with our, our conversation, our conversation, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, each person. We win them with gracious conversation, not always trying to be right. If you've got that little thing stuck in your head, I need to be right, I need to be right, turn that off. Not always trying to be liked. If you've got that track running in your head, I hope they like me, I hope they like me, turn that one off. Try to show grace. Ready for a rough edge. 
Win them with gracious conversation. Win them with interesting conversation. He says seasoned with salt. You know, that's not scripted. It's tasty so that it sticks. It's interesting so it leaves a memory. There's no contradiction here, mind you, between clarity or eagerness and, and charm. And while we do not speak to impress, it is okay to speak in order to leave an impression. We want to speak in such a way as to help the truth go down. And uh, this can't, you, you can't worry so much about being salty, interesting, memorable, that you don't, you don't speak, but just recognize the more you converse on a subject of such importance, the very salvation of your eternal soul, the better you'll get at listening and and speaking and answering. To win them with gracious conversation, with interesting conversation. And that's going to require listening. We win them with listening conversations. That we may know how to answer each one. We listen to their questions. We seek to understand how they think and why they think that. And we respect their, their history and their story and the things they were taught that have led them to believe this. Or that. And we're prepared to be flexible. We're not prepared with a formula. Why were the sermons and acts so different? Well, because the audiences and the hearers were different. And so it is with us. Our hearer is different. Each person is different. And so there's active, active evangelism in this passage. And there's also reactive. That we may know how to answer each person as our lives and our words provoke question and provoke intrigue. This is why you are Jesus' evangelism strategy. You are the church's primary evangelism strategy. And you are the best one to reach your loved ones and friends because you can listen and answer their questions. There's one man I've been studying for the better part of my Christian life. And he doesn't know the Lord yet. But I remember this comment, and I remember how he thinks about that. And I know that he feels really guilty for some of the things that he's done so long ago. And I know that that explains why he's so hard in that conversation, that conversation. I listen, listen. And I know to stare through the facade that I get here or there. And I know that at the right time when we're alone, he may make a comment and If I'm patient and quiet and gentle, I may have the chance to share the gospel. And that's happened a couple times. The Lord has blown the door wide open. And in those moments, you know, praying for an opportunity and thinking, what will I say? What will I say? And I've learned to kind of relax and be around and present and trust myself. And then we just end up in a conversation. And I, as I'm talking and we're talking, I say, God, you just blew the door open. And I'm getting to talk about sin. He might make a comment. You're not. <coughs> Excuse me. He may make a comment. You're not a sinner. You're not a sinner. This is underneath so much of the back and forth. The feeling that, that Trent's a holy man, a religious man. Oh, I got to break that all the way down. That's not true. And I can speak to that. There's one answer for all of us. And it's the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't come out in a formula. It comes out in a a listening conversation.
Every person is different. And we are Jesus' evangelism strategy for each person with an answer to each person. We don't hire out evangelism. Evangelism isn't like the Olympics. Don't think of the Olympics where all of America picks one person or a few people to go get it done. Think of it more like the Boston Marathon. We're all on the path. We're all on the path together. And we need all of us. Well, why this kind of customized conversation? Can't God just save them? Yes, he can and does save people in spite of bad and impersonal witness. But he normally uses his normal means, which are the words and ways of his people in the world. Because while the person is a sinner, God didn't make them crazy. If you are ungracious, that image bearer of God will intuit that there is a correspondence between the things you believe and the ways of your life and the ways of your speech. But the good thing about that and the way that God made them is that if you're gracious in your speech, they will also see a connection between the grace that you speak about and the grace that is reflected in you. That is how God has made them. And God normally saves people through the good work witness light of his people as a light in the world, confirming the message. We listen in order to speak to each person. And we listen in order to answer each person and their questions. You can also just ask if they have any questions, by the way. Sometimes that's enough. You know that I'm a a believer in in Christ. Do you have any questions about the Bible or what it means to be a Christian? I I might have them. I I might be glad to, to chase them down. You know, one-to-one Bible reading is a really great suggestion. Men, we've been going through this in our men's ministry in the last half year or so. Just getting together over coffee across eight weeks to work through the Gospel of Mark. It's a lovely strategy for provoking questions. We are a people talking to people about a person, and that's a personal process of conversation. You don't need the right personality to share the gospel. You don't even need to be the right person. You need to be a person to a person. And so here this morning, we have, if you will, a divinely inspired approach to local evangelism. An approach that sets its target on people with the gospel and not programs. An approach to evangelism that sees the congregation in partnership for the gospel, but individually and broadly deployed one to one in the community, even as their life together is a part of their light. An approach to evangelism that is both active and reactive, responsive. An approach that makes distinctions clearly between outsiders and insiders. Approach that has a message that is fixed, but messengers who are flexible. An approach that remembers the God who opens, but understands we are a people who ought An approach that holds out a clear gospel content and a life and love that commends it as true and good. And an approach that sees no competition between urgency and charm, eagerness and winsomeness. And an approach that embraces the risk of the reward of even one sinner who repents. And one last one. An approach to evangelism that focuses our lives on faithfulness in evangelism. Speaking, clarity, wisdom, not fruitfulness. An approach that stimulates faithfulness, 
and celebrates fruitfulness. Oh, friends, we are results-driven in our local evangelism. We long for even one sinner to repent. We are driven by the vision of a sinner repenting. We're driven by a vision of Jesus surrounded by in his throne by men and women worshiping him from every tribe and language and nation, many from around us. But we are not results steered. We have a job to do and this is it. What doors the Lord opens and what hearts he converts are a matter of his decision. And praise God for it. Praise God for a passage like this that compels us to a faithful witness but that doesn't put on us the fruit. Sometimes I've found that I need the encouragement that there is a God who opens doors because I don't see any way to open it. And sometimes I need the reminder that I can engage in friendly, winsome, eager, listening conversation and that God uses just that. Let's get after it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great privilege of knowing you through your son. And we thank you for the great privilege of being used by you to reach our community with the message of your son. And so as we began, we pray that we would be a vital witness to Jesus in our community, a faithful, vital witness to Jesus. Individuals spread throughout the community with his message. And we pray that you would open a door for the, go- the gospel, for the word on this street corner, in this community, in Greer, in Taylor's, in Greenville, in the upstate, and through the preaching of our individual members and the members of other gospel faithful churches, you would do a great work to save many in our city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.